0: Want to learn how to see and share Jesus from all of Scripture, we'll learn with us at the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. Welcome to the Christ Center and Clear podcast, where we discuss seeing and sharing Jesus from all the scriptures. And as with the last couple of episodes, this week again, we're going to hear from our conference in Dallas, Texas, where we looked at Christ in the wisdom literature. And this week on the podcast, we're going to hear from Pastor Juan Sanchez. Juan is a pastor in Austin, Texas. And he talked to us at this conference on Christ in Job. And so you'll want to hear uh, what he has to say about. Uh, seeing and, and sharing Jesus from the book of Job. Really, he does uh, an overview of just a kind of Christocentric homeneutic and then then kind of um, digs in more on the book of Job. Very much appreciate you listening to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast.
1: It's a joy to be here with you all. Um, uh, we don't have a lot of time together, so I'm just going to jump right in. And what I want to do to begin, we're going to be looking at Job. But to begin, I want to kind of just reinforce what Dr. Akin, uh, said. Aiken um, but I'm actually going to begin from Leviticus 11. So look at Leviticus 11, 1 through 8. And I'm going to just kind of uh, just, again, reemphasize what Dr. Aiken said at the very beginning. Uh, one of the things I've learned in pastoral ministry is you can never say the same thing too many times. Uh, that's just a helpful pastoral piece of advice. You got to keep saying the same things over and over and over again. And so uh, I just want to say what Dr. Aiken said over again, using maybe a little bit different language, and, and hopefully it, it will stick. Here's what I would ask as I read Leviticus 11:1 through 8. What kind of sermon might you preach from this text? Like, how do you preach this text? So, for example, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these the camel. I don't know about you, but I'm okay with that. Uh, Because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, never imagined I would eat one of those. Uh, Because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, I have eaten rabbit before, Uh, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, now we're getting personal. I personally happen to like bacon. Because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. So question number one. Is Leviticus 11, 1 through 8, the word of God? Is it without error? Is it to be preached? Is it to be obeyed? So are you disobeying the word of God when you eat bacon? Right? So we have a few choices. We can either read the text and say, oh, that doesn't have anything to do with us anymore. That's a dangerous approach, isn't it, to, to a biblical text? And my point is simply this we have to really understand what hermeneutic we're bringing to the text. We all bring frameworks to the biblical text, and we have to make sure that the text reigns over our frameworks. And when we come to the text, we're humble enough. To let the text rule over our systems and and you know pre-commitments, pre-understandings, presuppositions, whatever. And so, um, I'm going to share with you some principles that I've I've gleaned from uh, being with the guys at the Simeon Trust. Uh, in Chicago, that I, I want to just kind of help you to remember some of these things. But what we do, again, I'm, I'm saying the same thing Dr. Aiken said, but maybe with a little bit different language. Um, when we come to a biblical text, we have a choice to make, okay? Here's us. So what happens if we take this biblical text and then we immediately apply it to us, well, if we immediately apply it to us just on face value because it is the word of God, we have some choices we have to make. The first choice could be, well, we have to rearrange our diet, right? And I don't know about you, but you know, we homeschooled our girls in some circles, we saw a prevalence of people actually doing that, actually going back to the dietary restrictions and some of you as pastors may have to deal with some of this stuff. How are you gonna help a family that comes to you and says, Pastor, we, we think you're in sin because you're leading us to, to worship on Sunday and we think we should worship on the Sabbath and we should rearrange our diet. I mean, this is, this is all about biblical hermeneutics, isn't it? And so what I would say, again, what Dr. Aiken was saying is before we apply the text to us, we have to understand what the text meant to them in their then. Okay, this is what Dr. Akin was talking about, the historical grammatical um, hermeneutic. And, and what we do, I'm just going to give you some very quick questions to ask of the text as we're doing this, because I want to be as practical as possible. The first question is a question of structure. How did the author organize this text, because the, the way the author organizes the text, the structure is going to reveal an emphasis. And when we preach, we want to make sure we emphasize what the biblical author emphasizes. I'm not going to do a lot of detail in this. We have three different text types in Scripture, narrative, poetry, and discourse. And um, <clears throat> they have different rules to discerning the structure. But then the, the second question we want to ask is a question of context. And uh, Jonathan gave us a beautiful picture of, of the entirety of Proverbs. And when you understand the, the whole storyline of Proverbs and what is actually going on there, then you can preach the individual texts with greater clarity, right? So we want to know what comes before our text, what comes after our text. You know, how is this, how is this working in this Uh, you know, uh, how how does my particular uh, passage, how is it being informed by what comes before, what comes after? Where is it in the flow of the argument that's going on in the book? What's going on historically in the background? You know, where are the children of Israel in Leviticus 11? You know, how is that working? What is God doing? And, you know, something that's helpful, I'm a big picture guy. You know, I like to fly 30,000 feet, and so if you begin thinking, putting these things together, like Genesis answers the question of which seed, right? So uh, Dr. Aiken said, Genesis 3.15 is pivotal. I think Genesis 3.15 drives the entire narrative of the Old Testament into Matthew 1, which is a royal genealogy, identifying the seed. And so <clears throat> Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the grand promise you know, God is going to make a people and, and this, this nation. What, what do you need? Well, you need to live somewhere, so you need land. Well, what, what else do you need? Well, you actually need people in this nation. And so you have these grand promises. Genesis 1 answers the question well, which seed from the woman is going to crush the serpent? Well, Genesis is structured in 10 genealogies because it's chasing after identifying the seed. We get to Exodus. And by the end of Genesis, it's like, okay, we have the seeds. There's a lot of them. But Exodus, now they're in slavery. And so Exodus answers the question, well, how is the seed going to get to the land? And then we have the great redemption, right? And so, so you want to you understand the scripture, big picture, what's going on. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Okay, now we have a problem. We have this whole holy God, and we have this sinful people, how is a holy God going to dwell in the midst of a sinful people? Well, Leviticus helps us understand. God in grace provides a system by which the sinful people can seek repentance, be granted forgiveness, their sin be atoned for, and God will dwell with them. And so this is what's going on. And, and you, can, you can keep going you know, through here. Numbers answers the question, why didn't they make it into the land? So, so these kinds of big-picture questions helps us to kind of put the pieces together. Uh, then, thirdly, what we wanted to do is we want to summarize what's the author's main idea? And so what we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand what, why is this written for them in their then? And so what I would do. This is how I, this is how I do sermon prep. Uh, I'm just going to write a sentence, just identifying this is what the author is getting at. This is the main point. This is what he's getting across to them. Now, here's the problem. If, if we go from them to then, and then we immediately apply it to us, what happens? Well, yeah, we do miss Jesus, but this leads to moralism. Thou shalt not eat bacon right? Or possibly legalism, right? And so we don't want to do that. Now, what happens, (laughs) what we want to do then, is we want to understand that Christ has come. Christ has come. Okay, this is the cross. Christ has come. And so now we've done our exegesis here. Okay, this is our exegesis. We want to do some biblical reflection, Biblical theological reflection. This is what Dr. Aiken was talking about, biblical theology. We have to have a good, robust biblical theology to be able to understand because, yes, Leviticus 11 is in Scripture, but we also know that Christ has come, and he's inaugurated a new covenant. And so we want to know how Christ's coming now, how is my text to be read in light of the cross? How's my text to be read in light of the fact that we're no longer under this covenant? Do we just say, forget about it? Or how does Jesus deal with it? How do the apostles deal with it? How do the New Testament writers deal with this? And so that's the kind of biblical, theological reflection that we want to do. Now, the danger with some pastors who are introduced to Christ-centered preaching is that they do what uh, David Jackman calls trampoline preaching, right? And that's, you take the biblical text, you read Leviticus 11, and then you go right to Jesus. What does that create? Well, we can tend to spiritualize a text, right? Right? So you read Leviticus 11, and then you just go right to Mark 7. You go right to Acts, where the sheet comes down, and Peter's told, take up and eat. And, and we have no idea why was, this was written to them in their then. And so the, the point of this exercise is, is this is kind of where we're going to live in, in, in our time together today, and that is, how does my text anticipate or point to the gospel? How does Leviticus 11 anticipate or point to Christ, point to the gospel, point to the good news? And then from there, then what we're going to do is we're going to make an argument. What am I going to argue for our congregation from this text? And here's what I would propose to you. Our argument needs to be tightly bound to the author's argument, written not in them then language, but written in us now language in light of the cross. And then we're going to, we're going to write our sermon so, so if you notice, this is, a, this is somewhat of a process, but because it's a hermeneutical spiral, we might come and do our biblical theological reflection and realize, oh, we got, we got our exegesis wrong, so we're going to go back and we're going to fix that, and then we're going to keep working forward. And I think Edmund Clowney was the first to, to produce something like this, this kind of uh, theological framework. But the point is that if we miss the gospel, then we don't have a Christian message, If your sermon can be preached at a synagogue or a mosque, and it would be well-received, we have to ask ourselves, have we actually preached a Christian sermon? And so that's what we want to do. We want to make sure that we're preaching the gospel, preaching Christ. And as we think about the gospel, um, another temptation of Christ-centered preachers is just to preach justification, we think of the gospel and it's, just, it's always justification, no matter what we are. And so uh, let me just give you this little uh, kind of uh, illustration. So at the center, at the center of the gospel is the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. We wanna make sure we preach the death and resurrection of Christ. But as we think about the gospel, the gospel, we are also talking about what are we talking about in December? The incarnation, right? What do we talk about in Easter? The ascension and exaltation of Christ. Uh, Even as we think of Advent, we think about the second coming. And then, uh, you know, we could talk about the miracles and the teaching of Jesus. Those are different ways that we can look for gospel connections from our text to make that gospel connection to see. So for example, how does, you know, how does, how does Leviticus 11 anticipate the gospel or anticipate Christ? Of course, we have the responses to the gospel, right? We have faith. Uh, and then we have the, the results, right? Forgiveness And then, of course, we have, you know, talking about Jesus' teaching, we have obedience. Now, I will say one more thing. Uh, You can also use systematic theology to get to the gospel, to get to Christ. I'll have to show that in in just a minute from Job. Um, And so I just want to make sure that we're thinking through this. And then just before we get to Job, uh, to give you some strategies to identifying. So from Leviticus 11, where would you go? to point to Christ or the gospel. I mentioned one text already. All right, Jesus in Mark 7, you know, Mark has a parenthetical statement when you know, they, they didn't wash their hands and, and the religious uh, leaders say, hey, why don't your disciples wash their hands? And Jesus says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, it's what comes out from them. And then Mark has a parenthetical statement that says, and he declared all foods clean. So there's a shift. There's a covenantal shift that is taking place with the coming of Jesus Christ. And then Peter in Acts, the sheet comes down when God is preparing to send him to Cornelius and and we're seeing this shift. So So what we have to ask is, what is the point of Leviticus 11? And we begin to realize, I mean, we know what meals do. Some of us went out to to the ranch at Las Colinas last night, and we had a meal. We had we a had wonderful time of fellowship. We, we, you know, we, were, we were learning about one another. That's what meals do. They provide that context, don't they? God is distinguishing his people from the surrounding nations, right? When he brings them eventually to, to Sinai in Exodus 19, he says, all the nations are mine, but you are my private stash. That's what he says. A king had a personal treasure that represented everything he owned. If he ever became insecure, how rich am I? He could go to his private treasure and count it all up. And so God tells Israel, I own all the nations. Everything is mine, but you are my special treasure that represents all the things that I own. You represent all the nations, and and this is how you're to be to me. And so God separates Israel from the nations in order to show the world who he is, what he is like, and so he takes Israel, he places them in the center of their known world, and he says, you will have one God, not like the other nations who have many gods, you will have one king, I will be your king, and then you will be different in your government. You have a theocracy. You will be different in your dress. You will be different in your diet. Everything that God does is to distinguish them, to separate them out. This is a text about holiness more than it's a text about food. And so as we think about that, we wanna be thinking about how we're gonna shape this and how we're gonna apply that. We're gonna be looking at meals in the New Testament. You know, how how did Jesus eat meals? What What was the radical nature of some of the things that he was doing? You know, when he was eating meals, we can look at how, how um, you know, Paul was like the Jews when he was with the Jews, like those not under the law, how he rebukes Peter, right? When Peter went backwards instead of going forward. So we can make all those applications. So the, the point of this is not Leviticus 11. But how are we going to get to that? Just, you can do it through simple observations. Sometimes you look at the text, you read the text, oh, I know what's going on here. Um, You can look up New Testament references. You know, so is is my text cited anywhere else in Scripture? Is, Is my text being picked up and cited? Now, let me just warn us: just because our text is cited somewhere in the New Testament, that doesn't necessarily make it a gospel connection. But, but it can be, but, and that's where I like to start. I like to, make, I like to make the gospel connection so tight to the text that I'm in that I want it to be like a light bulb going off for, for our people. I want, what we're doing when we're preaching is we're teaching our people how to read their Bibles. We don't want to be the magician preacher. You know, the magician takes the rabbit and pulls the rabbit out of the hat and the children go, oh my goodness, where did that rabbit come from? We don't want to be that kind of preacher where we we make this profound point and the people go, oh my goodness, what incredible, that pierced my heart. I have no idea how he got there, but it was awesome, right? We don't want to do that. We want them to understand those Connections and again develop a good sense of biblical theology. How the Bible fits together, uh, consider the historical progression. Look at themes and then unfold them throughout Scripture. Uh, think about where your text falls in the timeline of redemptive history, and then uh, typology or analogy. Typology is a, a analogy is the big umbrella. Typology is a specific aspect of analogy, and uh, typology is is. When you have uh, types like persons, places, events, and institutions that uh, intensify as they unfold throughout Scripture. So like a a person could be an Adam type, Christ the antitype. Antitype is the the fulfillment. Places like Sinai and Zion, Hebrews chapter 12 makes that distinction. Um, Events like the Exodus, institutions like the temple, um, so, so this is, this is just some kind of introductory, uh, material to just kind of reinforce what Dr. Aiken has already said. And I just want to make sure that we're, we're kind of all starting in the same place. All right. That's all I'll do on the board. Let's look at Job. As you're opening your Bibles to the book of Job, let me define wisdom for us. This is a, this is a definition that I'm, I'm heavily dependent upon, uh, Douglas Moo in his commentary on James. But I think it's a helpful way for us to be thinking about how does Job fit in the wisdom literature. And the way I would define wisdom, and I'm happy to be corrected, stretched, added to, subtracted from, but wisdom is a divine grace. So in other words, it's a gift. It's a gift from God, right? James says that to us. I developed this definition preaching through James. Wisdom is a divine grace that, and here I quote Moo, involves biblical insight into God's purposes and ways. End quote. So that's Moo. So wisdom is a gift from God. It's a divine grace. What does it entail? It involves biblical insight into God's purposes and ways that provide the basis for a biblical outlook on life that leads to righteous living. So it's not just knowledge. Knowledge is foundational and important. A knowledge of God is foundational and important. But it's the kind of knowledge of God that comes from God. And the purpose of this knowledge that comes from God is that we would know him, his purposes, his ways, his character, and that that would form in us a worldview by which we choose the path that leads to life and we stay away from the path that leads to destruction. When you look at Psalm 1, it's it's set up this way, right? Psalm 1 sets up the entire Psalter. There are two ways. There are only two ways, the way of life and the way of death, the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness. Wisdom is a divine grace that <clears throat> involves biblical insight into God's purposes and ways that provide the basis for a biblical outlook on life that leads to righteous living. So the purpose of the wisdom literature is to guide us in the path that leads to life. And the book of Job raises the question, which, which is interesting when you, when you read the Proverbs and you read them flat, it's like, okay, if I do this, this will be the outcome, Right? And this is what prosperity theology is, isn't it? Prosperity theology is that if you do this, this will be the outcome. But all of us have prosperity theology. All of us have these kinds of tendencies of prosperity theology, right? If your life falls apart, you begin to wonder, well, God, what did I do? Or you begin to say, God, I, I was following you, I was being obedient. I was actually doing what you told me to do in this instant, and this is what I get? Right, so Job helps us to wrestle with the question of the suffering of the righteous. It explores the relationship between the sovereign God and his justice and the suffering of the righteous. Job asks the question, how can a just God allow the righteous to suffer? And what I wanna do in the time that we have left is walk us through because Job is a is a large book. I want to walk us through how this question is addressed by our characters. Right? So number 1 is Satan. How does Satan answer this question? How can a just God allow the righteous to suffer? Well, Satan's answer is simply this. God only blesses the righteous. He does not allow the righteous to suffer. So what we begin to see is Satan is the one who goes to God and he believes that if God removes the blessing of the righteous, the righteous will curse God. And again, we don't have a lot of time to go into the, the biblical text. Uh, I'll submit my outlines to Tyler and he'll, he'll get these uh, to you. But again, just thinking about this process, how does this actually work? Um, there are a number of ways. What I'm going to do I, since I don't have time to, to show you all the references, um, what I want to do is I want to kind of show some examples of how I would get to Christ from different aspects, uh, different places from Job. So, Satan, the righteous, only follow God because God blesses them. That's, that's what Satan charges. Hey, God, Job only follows you because you're blessing him. I mean, he's, he's just having a happy life. Why would he curse you? Well, Job defeats Satan's logic in chapter 1, verses 20 and 22, right? But as we we think about this first portion, chapter 1 and 2, uh, and Satan's accusations, what we begin to see is this theme in Scripture of Satan as the accuser of the brethren. We see this theme first in Genesis 3, don't we? And this is how Satan operates. It's, you know, when we begin to look at the scriptures like this, it becomes tremendously practical. So Satan tempts Eve and Adam, right? He promises. What, what Satan does is he offers promises for our joy that are in opposition to God's promises for our joy. And so what we begin to see then is, is this deceptive strategy of Satan. And once you take the bite and you begin to follow Satan's strategy for for your joy, what does he do? He turns that around on you and then he accuses you. And this is the pattern that we see from Genesis 3. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So uh, for example, if you go to 1 Chronicles 21, we'll spend a little bit more time here and then we'll kind of fly through. And so what, what am I doing? I've latched onto a theme, Satan, the, the person of Satan. And I want to just kind of think through how has Satan operated in Scripture? This takes me back to Genesis 3. I've thought through Genesis 3. I find myself in my study going to uh, 1 Chronicles uh, 21. In verse 1, it says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, go number Israel. So, so we, we begin to understand how Satan is operating throughout Scripture, don't we? And then we go to Zechariah as, as we're trying to flesh out this theme and trace it throughout. And in Zechariah chapter 3, what do we see there in verses 1 and 2? Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And so what I'm doing in my study is I'm kind of following this process. I'm just, I'm just latched onto the theme of Satan. I'm trying to understand how Satan's been operating. Satan operates, we see that in Genesis 3. We see how Satan is operating throughout the Old Testament as the accuser of the brethren. Uh, we can follow this theme into the New Testament, how Satan is the, the father of lies and, and how he is uh, opposed to God's people. And as we think about the promise in Genesis 3.15 that there will be a child born of the woman that will crush the serpent's head. And what we begin to see in the New Testament, Paul talks about in Romans 16, 20, of us crushing the serpent's head. But, But turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. So Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. And I heard a lost voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. so we begin to see these themes, how how Satan has been defeated by the blood of Christ, and we, as the children of God, we understand that, and we are victorious because of the blood of Christ. Now, what's going to happen in Revelation, and by the way, as, we, as we're doing this work, this is the, the work that takes time. As we're doing this work, we have to make sure that we're reading each passage in its own context, right? We have to understand how it's working. Uh, Someone told me this once, and I, I found it extremely helpful. If you're reading in the New Testament and you see an Old Testament citation, think of it as a hyperlink. Click on it, and it takes you back. And what you should do and work is not just say, oh, okay, this verse is cited here, but understand that the biblical authors, they understood the whole context of where this passage is coming from. So it's not the verse that makes the connection. It's everything that's going on around there that's informing the biblical author. And so we want to make sure we're understanding the different contexts of these passages of Scripture and how they're working. But ultimately, when we get to Revelation chapter 20, what we see is the destruction of Satan. He is thrown into the lake of fire. And, and the beautiful aspect of Revelation 20 is Revelation 20 is the fulfillment of the fact that Jesus Jesus is now reigning in heaven, and he is placing every enemy under his feet. And of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Revelation 20 shows that, how Jesus at the end is bringing every enemy under his feet. Satan, the rebellious kings of the nations, and death is the last enemy to be destroyed. And then we enter into the new heavens and the new earth. So this is what's fun about biblical theology. This is what's fun about studying. It's not, it's not just about making a connection with a verse. It's about seeing how the Bible fits together. And so even from Job 1 and 2, what we're able to help our people understand is Satan is our accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren. Satan is faithful. He defeats Satan's logic. And God ultimately has defeated Satan by sending his beloved son, to crush the serpent's head on the cross. And even though Satan is roaming around like a lion seeking to devour the people of God, his time is short. Satan is God's Satan. He can only do what God permits him to do. And that's what we begin to to see here. All right, now we're gonna fly through the rest of this. All right, Job, how does Job answer the question, right? Uh, How can God, how can a just God allow the righteous to suffer? Job's answer is, God is not fair. How can God allow the righteous to suffer and the wicked to prosper? As Job unfolds in chapter 3, Job laments his birth and life. Why was I ever born? Um, Job struggles with the question of righteous suffering. Uh, He repeatedly declares his innocence in chapter 6, 7, and 9. Job sees life as unfair in chapter 9. He repeatedly wonders why the wicked prosper, chapter 12, chapter 21. Job wonders why God is silent. That's an important theme in Job, Uh, chapter 19, chapter 23. And then the question is, how can anyone be just or right before God? Chapter 9. How can anyone be right before this God? And of course, that's where we can do our systematic theology and, and go to, well, how can someone be right before God? Right? Romans 3 helps us to understand about justification. Uh, the problem is that, according to Job, there is no mediator between God and man. Job wants an audience with God, and he says there's no mediator. And of course, the New Testament tells us that there is a mediator between God and man, and his name is Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. And of course, we could take that theme of mediator and we can trace it from, from the priesthood all the way forward to Jesus, uh, the high priest. Uh, therefore, Job wants a personal audience with God, chapter 13, chapter 16. Um, and so as we, as we see these things unfold, um, Job is thinking wrongly, but he's also thinking rightly in places. Um, the sovereign Lord has handed him over to his enemies. He understands that. He he has a robust understanding of the sovereignty of God. He understands that it is God who has struck him. In chapter 19, he says as much. And yet, Job knows that his Redeemer lives. And not only does he know that his Redeemer lives, he knows that even if he dies, he will see him in his flesh. So, we got to study that. we got to chase it down. We can't be lazy, right? We can't be lazy pastors. We have to be curious pastors. And so is this really talking about the resurrection? I don't know, but that's what we're going to study, and that's the theme we're going to trace and chase down. We're going to talk about judgment, what happens in the resurrection. How did Job's friends answer the question? Job's friends answered the question by saying this. God does not allow the righteous to suffer. You suffer because you're not righteous, Right? not helpful. So um, this is their prosperity theology. Um, Their theology is essentially the righteous prosper or blessed by God, the wicked will suffer. Uh, This is known as the uh, retributive principle or the retribution principle. Um, Eliphaz, his wisdom, again, notice how divine wisdom is pitted against human wisdom. So the wisdom of Eliphaz is you suffer because you have sinned, Job, Job chapter four. His counsel, repent, chapter five, verse eight. Be glad you're suffering, chapter five, verses 17 and 18. Uh, They have investigated this case, and it is so, 527. Therefore, you're guilty, Job. There's some funny parts of Job, you know, like, wow, I was I was sleeping and I saw this vision, and the spirit passed by me. And so, I mean, you have all kinds of weird stuff going on. That, and so I'm certain because of this, Job, that you're guilty. Bildad's wisdom: God does not pervert justice, so you must be guilty. Chapter eight. Um, his counsel: Repent. Chapter eight. Uh, Zophar's wisdom: God is unfathomable and knows all. So, your friend is suffering doesn't understand why and you say you know what god is just so incredible we just can't understand him true but unhelpful mm-hmm. right um, his counsel repent <laughs> chapter 11 verse 13 15 so job's friends believe this theology works in the reverse order those who prosper must be righteous those who suffer must be wicked Eliphaz in his wisdom says, it is the wicked who suffer. You're suffering, so you must be wicked. Bildad's wisdom is, this is your fault. This is what happens to the wicked. And Sofar's wisdom is, the wicked do not prosper. Suffering is his portion. And so Job's friends have no category for righteous suffering. The benefit of the book of Job is it gives us a category for righteous suffering. When we think about suffering, we have to understand suffering is connected to sin. So we suffer either because of Adam's sin, right? Natural evil, uh, the sin that is in the world. It is because of someone else's sin. Someone has sinned against us. Uh, We're a victim of their evil, their sin, or because of our sin. Job is dealing with the category of why do we suffer when we didn't do anything to suffer? Why do we suffer? And so... Um, Job's friends have no category for righteous suffering. And so they proceed to tell him his sins. But then this, this character Elihu comes in. And the way he answers the question is this way. Though the righteous suffer, the sovereign Lord is just. And he does not waste our suffering. And he is worthy to be exalted. There are different debates as to who this Elihu is. Is he another one of you know, these knuckleheads? Or, or is there something else going on there? Um, Elihu's counsel is, Job, you're not right, for God is greater than man, Thirty-three, twelve. Uh, Elihu is a righteous man like Job, 33, 1 through 7. Job has been wrong about God, 33, 8 through 12. Elihu says God is not silent. God speaks to us through our suffering. Thirty-three, thirteen 13 through 18. God does not waste our suffering. He does chasten men with pain on his bed to bring his soul back from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. And so God uses our suffering to warn us of pride, to remind us of remaining sin and to turn us away from evil, chapter 36. And another way of saying this is God uses our suffering to rescue us. It's counterintuitive, but <coughs> it is true nonetheless. Elihu pleased with Job to listen to him so that Elihu may justify Job and teach him wisdom. Uh, God cannot do wickedness. He does not pervert justice. God sees all the wicked cannot hide. People accuse Job that he should be tried to the limit. Elihu answers Job and his friends. His friends are no help. God is silent because of the pride of evil man. Job opens his mouth with words without knowledge. And Elihu speaks on God's behalf. He offers a theodicy. The Lord is just, punishing the wicked and delivering the afflicted. The Lord God is exalted in his power. You should exalt God's work. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord God is worthy of exaltation. And then finally we have God. How does God answer the question? He basically says, will you condemn me to justify yourself? (laughs) Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Chapter 38, verse 2. God tells Job to get ready to take it like a man, for God will now ask him questions. There's some like 70-something questions God asks him. They're tied to creation theology. And God asks Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? 40, verse 2. And Job's brief response is, Behold, I am of small account. God asks, Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Chapter 40, verses 6 through 9. And then in chapter 42, we have Job, his friends, and God. Job responds to God with humble repentance. There's that theme of repentance. The Lord rebukes Job's friends, interestingly, not Elihu. Uh, Chapter 42, verses 7 through 9, here we have the, the principle of justice. And then the Lord restores Job's fortunes Twofold. Chapter 42, verses 10 through 17. We have a principle of restoration. So as we're, we're going through this, and we're going to be really helpful to our people. We want to identify these themes and take them to Christ and show them Christ. So some closing reflections, and then I'll pray. What are we to think of Satan? Satan is God's Satan. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. How are we to comfort one another in the midst of pain and loss? Well, Job's friends help us to know how to not to, (laughs) in the words of Tater from Cars, how to not to. Now I will just say this, uh, one of the difficulties of preaching Job is trying to discern how to preach what Job's friends are saying. It's almost like we're preaching uh, negative film, right? We take what they're saying and we kind of say the reverse of it, and we have to understand how that's working. Um, and then how to, uh, Job responds well initially. Uh, Where do we find answers? True wisdom lies with God, Job 28, verses 12 through 28. Where do we turn in the midst of pain and loss? Well, since wisdom is with God, we must look to and cling to God in Christ, the only innocent sufferer, 1 Peter 3, 18, right? Um, Jesus is the innocent sufferer and there on the cross we see where wrath justice and mercy meet the innocent dying for the ungodly and the unrighteous how are we to endure in the midst of pain and loss remember that god does not waste our suffering therefore let us not waste our suffering regardless of our circumstances we must do right and hold on to righteousness job 27 1 through 4. I'll read uh, from First Peter 1 in just a moment, and I'll close in prayer. But brothers and sisters, wisdom is a divine grace. It is from God. He invites us to ask him for wisdom. Wisdom is the knowledge of God that leads us to understand his character, his nature, his purposes, and his ways so that with that knowledge of God, we have a worldview that allows us to walk in righteousness even when life doesn't make sense. So I'll close with the words of Peter in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Even though we do not see him, we love him. Even though we don't understand suffering at times, we know him. God is wise, he is sovereign, he is good, he is faithful. Therefore, even when we don't understand We can trust God. Job never got the answer to why he suffered. So that should be helpful to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've had. Uh, Father, I don't know what my brothers or sisters in this room are going through, but I pray that they may be encouraged from Job and from your revelation of how you work in Job, how we live in a world that is filled with sin. Satan is our accuser, and he will... He will try to orchestrate circumstances to get us to question your sovereignty, to question your wisdom, to question your goodness, to question your faithfulness. But Father, even when we don't understand and when we don't see, we know that you are God and we can trust you. We know your purposes, we know your ways. We know that you you do not waste our suffering. And so even when we don't understand even when we don't see, even when it seems like you are silent, we will take one step at a time, putting one foot in front of the other, and we will walk in the way of wisdom that leads to life. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com. And please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources.